the single greatest fruit that should come from our lives as genuine Christian followers, love God, love others in one word, love. Now listen, love not defined by culture, love not defined by society, love not defined by media, love defined by God's word, love defined by Jesus Christ, love defined by the truth we hold in our hand right now. But the single greatest fruit that we should have from our lives is the royal law of love. Hey, welcome to Live in the Light. Robbie Simons here. So thankful you have joined us again today. Hey, want to start off today's session and time of ministry with you. Just want to be able to pray for you. Uh, we're excited to be in the book of James. We're praying it's speaking to you verse by verse. That's what we do. We're so thankful for that. But we are specifically praying today. I'm just trying to imagine whether you're in your car, whether you're at home, whether you're on your computer, you know, with somewhere else. But just that um, taking the time to be set apart and to try to listen to the voice of God and to be impacted by his word. That's why we do this. So I pray in Jesus' name that today in a very special way, the Holy Spirit will speak to you, encourage you, that you will know how much God delights in you, not by what you've done, but because of his son, Jesus Christ, in you. I sincerely pray that you would be unusually aware of his grace and mercy and his love upon you in all that he's done and given that if you are genuinely saved in Jesus Christ, you truly have no reason to fear. There's no guilt in life and you have all the hope of the resurrection of the dead. This is the power of believing in Jesus and loving Jesus. This is the power of belonging to Jesus Christ. And so again, we bring God's word to you that you might be drawn closer to God, that you might know his intimacy more, and then you might experience his blessing and joy uh, upon your life. Again, that's why we're here, living the light. As always, if you would be encouraged and God is working, please let us know. And we're excited to bring you today in James chapter two, this message uh, going through the first several verses of that chapter. God bless you all. Love you all. And thanks for tuning in to Live in the Light. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. Be seated and please find a Bible open to James chapter two. James chapter two, where we are together. So we spent seven weeks in James chapter one, and we're going to spend two weeks in James chapter two. All right, so seven weeks in James chapter one, two weeks in, Lord willing, James chapter two. Why is that? Because um, in part for the first time in this letter, James decides to develop a single theme at length. So the first time as we come to chapter two, he takes one issue and he unpacks it in length. Chapter one was like rapid fire. James was like giving us a few jabs, went for right cross and big uppercut with conviction. That's what he did. Now chapter two, he decides to, okay, forget the flurry of punches. Let's grapple. Okay, he's gonna, gonna grapple us and just wrestle us down on two main themes in chapter two. And he's going to do it at length as well. The first issue that he tackles now is the issue of partiality. Very interesting. Again, hey, one of the great blessings of preaching Teaching expositorily through scripture, right? Starting chapter one, verse one, all the way through. You just hit issues you would not hit otherwise. 
And that's what we're doing through the book of James. You just like, it wouldn't be a, a passage. Maybe you'd pick by itself. You had one chance to preach, but we're here now and that's exciting. And so we're just going through again, uh, God's word again, verse by verse. And that becomes a great blessing for us. So this issue of partiality, the length that James gives to it. And mind you, when I say James gives to it, the Holy Spirit, right? Writing through James. Evidently, this means this was a real issue among his audience. Uh, once again, James's theology is so practical. Uh, it's so down to earth. We love that. His heart for the church here is so evident as well. Um, he's just, he just sees such a passion for the church to love like to put their faith into action, to put feet to their faith. Again, the theme of our series. And what he does now, he takes extended real estate. And here's our title of the sermon is to tell us why is partiality a problem? Why is partiality such a problem? So James chapter two, let's check out the first seven verses to begin. And then Lord willing, we'll get to verse 13 um, as well. So uh, James two, verse one says this, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in a good place. Well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down on my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges, notice, with evil thoughts? Verse five is key for this whole text. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you, in contrast, have dishonored the poor man, the person that God has chosen. You've dishonored the poor man and are not the rich ones who oppress you? Not the rich ones, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Let's stop there and let's begin to unpack and exegete our text, okay? The first point is abundantly clear. When it comes to the church, number one, partiality is problematic. And that's kind of putting it lightly in some ways. Partiality is problematic. So in verse one, the word partiality literally means, interesting, receiving the face. Receiving the face, meaning partiality is when we hold appearances as most important. The externals get all the attention. We are uh, evaluating people based on superficial um, kind of parts of who they are. Uh, we're not concerned about what's internal, but rather again, the externals are taking up our attention and are deciding the worth of the individual that is in front of us. So in the case of partiality or favoritism, this was being given in the context we're in right now. This was being given to those who had social status, to those who were important, to those who had strong appearances, to those who were wealthy. It's good to know in the first century, um, it was a very partial age. There were significant divisions in society. Hatred was often seen between classes or ethnicities or nationalities and religion. I mean, in scripture, we see this in many cases as well, like in the gospels and stuff, the, the tension or hatred between Jews and Samaritans. Now, often the divisions, the distinctions and, and tension or hatred between Romans and basically everyone else, right? In the case of our passage here, there was prejudice specifically though, among the socioeconomic classes. And James is passionately, like very passionately against this. 
I also want you to see in verse one, James says, notice, show no partiality. Now look at the reason he gives, again, initially, verse one, take a look. Show no partiality to those who hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, the Lord of glory. Why is that there? Why is that important? Here's why, okay? When your vision is of Christ and his glory, when you see Christ in his worth and glory and his splendor, it's very, very difficult at that point to deem yourself better than someone else, okay? The vision of the glory of Christ, all you see is his worth and compared to Christ, we become absolutely nothing. So it's like Isaiah and Isaiah 6 and his vision of the temple, of the glory of the Lord. And he is just, woe is me. He is like disintegrated in the glory and the beauty of God. And all he sees is how unworthy he is. He's spending no time comparing himself to others around him. There's not, 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 not an ounce or a smidge of like, look how great I am. It's just in the glory of the Lord, he comes to nothing. Uh, Luke 5, Peter in the boat, they catch a fish. Whatever happens there, Peter sees Christ in his glory. Peter crumbles to his knees and says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. He has no time, no ability to look around and compare himself to other disciples or apostles. None of that whatsoever. He sees the glory of Christ and he is shredded in the midst of that. And he is so humbled in his own sinfulness and all he can think about, you are holy, I am not. And there's zero comparisons horizontally. That's what's happening right here. This is what what James is saying. Listen, if you've been saved by the glory of Jesus Christ and his gospel, and you know how awesome he is, why are you spending time showing partiality to people around you when you yourself are nothing in light of, again, Christ and his perfection? So the more we see a vision of Christ, the less we'll be partial and discriminatory within our own lives. And verses two to four explain though that distinctions were being made as they gathered to assemble together. What happened? Walls were being built up between them, again, among socioeconomic classes. But here's the awesome thing, right? Jesus Christ came, what? To break down the walls of hostility, Ephesians chapter two. Jesus Christ came with the gospel available to all. And in the context of Galatians chapter three on the screen for you, because the gospel is not just for Jew, but also for Gentile, in that sense now, because Christ came, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. It doesn't eliminate their distinctions. It means the gospel is available to all. We all become one. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. Again, in light of the reality, all can receive the gospel. There will always be those distinctions through the end. Age, there's always going to be male and female as God created them, but both male and female have the ability to receive the gospel and become one together in Christ Jesus. So therefore, in that sense, there should be no favoritism or partiality between any of these examples. And that's the beauty of the unity and the humility that should be within the genuine Christian church, okay? But this gospel, man, it was earth shattering in the first century because because walls of division were crumbling down in the light of the love and the grace and the truth that was found in Jesus Christ. More on that in a moment, but we need to know this, okay? The unity and humility did not come easily when the church was started. And that's what our text is saying. Christ came, but here was this struggle. The rich were being favored and the poor were being dishonored. Notice in verse 4 too that partiality is clearly denoted here as evil. 
Their discrimination was viewed as wicked by James, by God, by the Holy Spirit. Why is this so? Why is partiality wicked? Why is discrimination so evil? Think about it. It's because when we are partial or we discriminate in that moment, it's people are deciding the value of other people. That's why. We have no right. We are all one in Christ Jesus. There's no one that's better than another on those terms. But partiality is deciding that someone is worth less than another person. And only God, the judge, in the end, gets to decide, again, has the authority to judge such things. But partiality means you are declaring one's worth to be less than your own. And that's a very, very serious indictment for those who seek to do such things. Furthermore, in partiality, here's what often happens and here's what's going on here as well in the text. In partiality, we often will give preference to those who we think we can benefit from the most. So we treat others with kindness or treat others, whatever, with favoritism because really we're hoping to get back from them something that they can give us. So that leads to sins of self-glory, selfishness, self-preservation, self-promotion. This was the sin of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So consumed with self and they exalted one another in the hopes of benefiting each other. That's why partiality, again, is sinful, is evil, and is such a problem within the church. It has no place within the genuine Christian church. Those are really good reasons why partiality is such a problem. But really the greatest reason why partiality is such a problem in this context is because those who are partial, listen, against the poor in this case, they totally miss the heart of God. Those who are partial towards, again, the rich, and again, in a negative way towards the poor, they totally miss the heart of God. And that's a major, major problem. So look at verse five again. Look at verse five, key verse. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So the major point that James is making here, okay? Partiality proves that you don't understand the heart of God. Being partial to the rich means we don't understand the very heart of God. So we might be speaking some words of God like we might know some Christianese, we might know some, fra- some, some, some phrases, we might say some things that God has said, but if we are partial to the rich, then we have proven that we don't really know or have the heart of God because God is never this way. God is not partial. And listen, when we are partial to the wealthy or to the rich, that also proves that we put too much stock in wealth and riches. I'll say it again, okay? When we are partial to those who are wealthy and rich, we have placed too much emphasis, too much worth on the value of earthly wealth and riches. That proves something about our hearts. So examine your heart right now. Is that a problem? Examine your hearts. If we are partial in this way, it proves that something is wrong within. Here's a great quote here by Bruce Hurd. He says this, the wealth of an individual is no measure of the worth of an individual. Our world doesn't do that very well at all. That's really good. The wealth of an individual has no, no, nothing to do with the true worth of an individual. Otherwise, Jesus Christ himself would be nothing because Jesus Christ had nothing. Yet he was the greatest treasure of a person who ever lived. This is the heart and the power of the gospel and the heart of God. Consider how much our culture though and our society fawns over the rich and famous, right? 
Just like to tumble over ourselves to, to exalt and to honor. You know, like those award shows, those like Hollywood award shows, they make me want to puke. Okay? Like just these, these celebrities are just crawling all over themselves to exalt and how great and da, 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 da. It's the opposite of God's heart. Like the rich and the famous are held up and there they are so important. And God is the opposite of God's heart. God is near to the broken heart. It saves the crushed in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, God says the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. Oh God, you will not despise. God upholds the proud. He gives grace to the humble. The heart of God is so often for those who are poor in this world because it's not always, not 100%, but so often it's the poor in this world that understand they need the Lord. One commentator said this, the rich man may trust God, but the poor man must trust God. As we've explained many times, as the Bible explains many times, it's not that the rich can't be saved. It's just, it's way harder, the Bible says, for the rich to be saved. Why? Because the rich have this obstacle of this false sense of security that they have everything put together. They don't have needs. Therefore, they become their own God. And let me just say, as we've said many times in the past in this church, we all being part of where we live, this is a danger for every single one of us in one way or another. We have so much. So we must be very careful and guard our hearts with all vigilance. Because if we're not careful, then we will start to think that we're much more secure than we actually are. And we might start to show partiality to those people that we sinfully desire to be like. Consider too that um, partiality is the opposite of James 1 verse 27. Remember that from last week? Look at James 1 verse 27. Here's pure religion that you visit widows and orphans right? That you have a a heart of compassion for those who are helpless. When you give partiality to the rich, you've just done the opposite of what God commanded in verse 27 in James 1. It goes against the very heart of God. So partiality is problematic. Now, verses six and seven, they're interesting. Notice in verse six, he's like, but you have dishonored, or that could mean humiliated the poor man. So contrast with verse five in the heart of God, the very people that God wants to favor and honor, you've actually dishonored the ones that God has a heart for. Well, that's not good. That's what he says there again in verse six. Isn't it interesting too? Jesus Christ himself, in my readings this week, 2 Corinthians 8, for our sake, Jesus Christ became poor, Now that means mostly again, spiritually, obviously, but he also was physically poor. Foxes and, you know, birds of a nest to lay their heads. The the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus Christ came and gave up everything that we might have everything. Jesus Christ was rejected by so many people. The elites of society, for the most part, rejected Christ because he didn't look like them. Jesus Christ was absolutely rejected. They esteemed him not, Isaiah 53. Among the religious leaders of the day, they could not stand him in part because they did not, he did not look like him. He did not have what they had. He did not speak the way they spoke. He was rejected in the midst of, you could say, his, his poverty. Fascinating. How many people staring at the very son of God because he wasn't playing the cultural part. He was cast to the side and ultimately murdered. We need to be very, 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 very careful that we're not rejecting the very ones that God has a special heart for. In the second half of verse six and verse seven too, he's like, listen, you're catering to those who in the end will just treat you like trash. 
Why would you cater to the ones in the end that are against you in the first place? In the first century, okay, in the first century, it was often the wealthy who would use the course to steal from the poor. The wealthy would use their leverage, they would use their status, they would use their importance, they would use their connections, they would use their corruption, and they would often find ways to steal from the poor. They might accumulate greater riches for themselves. James makes it clear it was the rich who would often blaspheme the name of Christ, which proves they weren't sincere believers to begin in the first place. So he's like, listen, why would you be partial to those who in the end will persecute you, in the end would blaspheme the name of your Savior, Jesus Christ? That's a very, very important question for us to consider and answer. That wouldn't make much sense at all. I just want to pause here for a second and just provide some summary application from the first couple of verses because I want us to be clear. Here's what James is saying in many, many ways. Number one, partiality is a problem because it's sinful. Partiality is a great problem within our lives. Number two, God has a special heart for the poor. If we are genuine believers in Jesus Christ, we also must have a heart of compassion for those who are helpless, for those who are poor, that we may come alongside them and love them. Number three, notice this, this is important. James is not saying it's a sin to be wealthy. James is saying it's a sin to give, be partial towards the wealthy. That's what James is saying. And it's also making sure that it's not a sin to be wealthy, but to put our hope in it is. To put our trust in riches is. To live for earthly riches alone is a sin. And then lastly, this, do not favor those who hate you. Right? What do we mean by that? Well, again, I think our application in our lives or our culture would be, be, be really careful who you follow. Now let's, let's make sure we understand, right? And in this case, he's like, why are, you, why are you being partial to those who will drag you to court, steal from you at the end, blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ? Some of us right here, the, pers- the people or people, the persons we follow the most, social media, entertainment, those we look to, the wisdom we're seeking to gain and gather are people that if you really knew how they feel, they would actually hate the name of Jesus Christ, hate the word of God, hate the truth and want nothing to do with Christianity. Why would you honor or favor or follow people who in the end hate your savior? Don't do that. I think that's really, really dumb. Why would you want to model your life after people who absolutely disdain the very savior that has saved your life and given you everlasting life? That's what I think in part James is saying right now. Why would you be partial to such people? We love them. We pray for their salvation. We want to be humble again around them. We want to extend again in humility again. Again, it's not saying we don't love them and pray for enemies, but do not do not follow them or be partial to them or honor them in the sense that you're looking to them. That doesn't make any sense. Rather be partial to those who have the heart of Christ and those again who need our love in specific and practical ways. So partiality is problematic. Now, point number two is this, partiality betrays the law of love. Partiality betrays the law of love. Look at, look at verse eight now. James says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Look at verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it, okay? So James says the royal law. What's the royal law? It's beautiful. The royal law is that which is given by a king. The Lord gave the law of the 10 commandments, which is summarized by King Jesus 
in two essential commands. Matthew 22, verse 37 on the screen for you, right? A legal expert asked Jesus the question, which is the greatest commandment? This is what Jesus said. You shall love the Lord your God, heart, soul, and mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice what he says here. Jesus says categorically, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Therefore, these, this is the royal law which genuine believers in Christ are most called to and becomes our highest aim and our greatest purpose. So the single greatest fruit that should come through genuine Christ followers is the royal law. And the royal law is love. The single greatest fruit that should come from our lives as genuine Christian followers, love God, love others in one word, love. Now listen, love not defined by culture, love not defined by society, love not defined by media, love defined by God's word, love defined by Jesus Christ, love defined by the truth we hold in our hand right now. But the single greatest fruit that we should have from our lives is the royal law of love. And let's be also clear here then, no believer this side of heaven will fulfill this law perfectly. No one can do that this side of heaven. However, it is to be our pursuit and our priority that above all things, the fruit of the spirit is love. The great commandment is love God and love your neighbor. Again, our highest aim and call. What I love about the love of Christ in the love of the gospel is the Christian church through love has been the single greatest force all throughout history the last 2000 years, irrefutable based on any true study of history because that's what Jesus Christ does through his church. Has the church made mistakes? Tons and tons of times. You don't evaluate the church though just on mistakes. You evaluate the church again on the majority of what has happened throughout history, which is irrefutable and undeniable. Um, I received a book a couple months ago. I'm gonna put it on the screen for you. Um, it's my favorite book of the year. Um, I didn't know anything about it. I started reading it. I was blown away. I was so excited. It's called The Book That Made Your World. It's by an Indian Christian scholar, apologist, Vishal Mengawadi. And um, the subtitle, How the Bible Created the Soul of Western Civilization. And it goes through, I highly, highly recommend it. And it goes through history. And he's so well-researched and just proving how the truth of God's word and the gospel of Christianity is the greatest driving force of true change and love. And he comes from an Eastern background in India. So he's so able to contrast and with personal testimony and with incredible evidence to see how the love of Christ has made such an impact in so many different ways. One chapter of this book, there's so many, one chapter is about compassion, about the Bible, the Christian faith, the gospel and compassion. And a couple of quotes that I took from that, I hope to quote from this for honestly years to come, it's such gonna be a valuable resource. But he starts to highlight Justin Martyr who lived in the second century and Justin Martyr, when he came to Christ, the impact in that, again, kind of early days of the church. Here's what he said about the impact of the love of Christ. He says, we follow the only unbegotten God through his son. We who listen, who formerly delighted in fornication, but now embrace chastity alone. We who formerly used magical arts, now we dedicate ourselves to the good and unbegotten God. We who used to value above all things the acquisition of wealth and possessions, now we bring in what we have into a common stock and communicate to everyone in need. 
We who used to hate and destroy one another on account of their different manners would not live with men from a different tribe. Now, since the coming of Christ, we live closely with them. We pray for our enemies and endeavor to persuade those who hate us unjustly to live conformably to the good precepts of Christ. To the end that they may become partakers with us of the same joyful hope of a reward from God, the ruler of all. Hey everyone, I'm sure many of you have heard that November 28th is Giving Tuesday. No, doesn't sound familiar? Well, Giving Tuesday is a global generosity movement unleashing the power of people and organizations to transform their communities and the world. It was created in 2012 as a simple idea, a day that encourages people to do good. Over the past 11 years, this idea has grown into a global movement that inspires hundreds of millions of people to give, collaborate, and celebrate generosity. Live in the Light exists to see lives radically transformed by the revelation of God's truth. This is what's close to our hearts. If you get fired up for the gospel and people learning about Jesus is your heartbeat as well, would you consider spending your Giving Tuesday on Live in the Light? A gift of any amount helps keeps us on the air, and because of that, more people can hear God's Word each day through stations like this. If the mission of Live in the Light resonates with you, you can donate on our website at liveinthelight.ca. We can't wait to see what God will do through the generosity of His people this Giving Tuesday. That's all for today. Hope you can join us again next time on Live in the Light. I wanna be-